On today's episode, Ashley shares the story of the mob's very own queen, Virginia Hill. Welcome to Crime Bar. I can't tell you how many times we start and I want to be like, hello, my baby. Hello, my <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've never I've, heard you do that to me before and I, I need know. you to start doing that. And right? I don't know why my instinct is to do it here. Right now? Yeah, but it's it's every time we say hello, how you know, we start it, I'm ready to be like, hello, my baby. Is that a, is that a song? Like yeah, a real like one? An, yeah. Oh, I thought you just wrote it for me. Oh, no. Oh, <laughs> so it's not that special. <laughs> like a really old famous song. Oh, yeah. I've never heard of that. It's like one of the, it's, it's like from the 1920s or something. So it's like, well, it doesn't matter how many times I do it. You're not going to know it. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to explain who wrote it. Um, what are we covering today? You haven't told me anything. It's a story about the mob. And last night I was like, you came so- into the kitchen. You're like, you know what? The mafia is a violent organization. And I'm like, mm, <laughs> no, you don't say. <laughs> um, I'm doing the story of Virginia Hill. Technically, you can't call her a mobster or anything like that because she's a woman, but she worked a for mobsta. The, a mobsta. <laughs> she's not, but she, but she is. Yeah. She deserves the title because she definitely. You can call her a mafia queen. Queen. I mean, queen. that's what she's known as, is, as the mob queen, but um, she just, she was just involved in Heavily. all of it. Yeah. So um, it's her life story and um, it's very interesting. I'm doing it because as much as I disagree with like almost all of this woman's life choices, I'm a sucker for any story of a woman defying the odds or making mm-hmm. it in a man's world and things like that. Absolutely. She was born into very violent criminal activity kind of world where everyone is already responsible for their own survival. Yeah. So I think in today's world, she would definitely be diagnosed as a sociopath. <laughs> but back then, you just did what you had to do. Yeah. But it's also like the argument of um, it's very much in the realm of like nature versus nurture. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I think she's just a product of what she was born into. Her environment. Yeah. And then um, another reason that I'm doing it is because I have a personal connection to it, which I'll add in at the end. So Oni Virginia Hill was born on August 26, 1916. So she is a Virgo. Mm-hmm. She was the seventh of 10 kids in a really poor family in Lipscomb, Alabama. Her dad, Mac, was in the business of trading livestock or something like that. But he was essentially just a con man. Like he just conned a lot of people out of money and then he would spend it on alcohol and women. So all of his children were just left hungry and yeah. always wanting for more. Virginia said that when she was born, her entire family of nine lived in a decrepit four-bedroom home, which was really more of a shack than like an actual house. She hated her dad her entire life. She said as an adult that she could not recall a time when he wasn't drunk. And whenever he was drunk, he would beat her and her mom and the rest of her siblings very severely. But her mom loved him, so she stayed and she tried to make the best of it. She took most of the beatings in hopes that it would spare her kids. And 
She tried to pick up as many odd jobs as possible to help put food on the table. But then being away in order to provide for them meant that Mac actually beat the kids more often because she wasn't there to intervene. Great. (laughs) (laughs) So living in an environment like this, I mean, like her dad's mere presence, like meant violent chaos. So she learned from the time that she was very little how to fly under the radar, even in the most extreme conditions. And then one day when Virginia was only seven, her mom was away working and Mac walked in drunk as usual and found Virginia in the kitchen. She was standing near the stove when he tried to swing at her and she was so fed up being this grown man's punching bag that she turned, grabbed a cast iron skillet from the stove that was still hot and filled with grease. Great. And she threw it at her dad as hard as she could. Mm Mm-hmm. It hit him square in the chest and then knocked him backwards. And after this incident, Mac still beat his wife and kids, but he never hit Virginia ever again. She said she had initially been scared at the idea of like standing up to him, but she was dreading another beating so much that she just grabbed the skillet without even thinking. Then seeing a grown man cower in the corner underneath this scrawny little seven-year-old redhead, and also seeing the long-term effects of standing up to someone like that because he never hit her again, that created what would be a lifelong pursuit of power and control, especially over men. Yeah, love that. (laughs) Love that for her. Love that for her. No, I think that's badass. (laughs) Anyways, her parents stayed together for a few more years. Um, They have three more kids, the youngest being Virginia's brother, Charles, who everyone called Chick. She was 11 years older, but she always had a soft spot for him, and they were very, very close. Eventually, her mom leaves Mac and all of the kids go with her to Georgia to live closer to her side of the family. So for Virginia, seeing her mom finally leave an abusive alcoholic, take all of her 10 kids, move out of state and then become a working single mother providing for all of them and not relying on a man, which was very rare for the 1920s, that changed Virginia's perspective on life forever. She was now in an environment where not only is her mom setting that example, but now she's surrounded by very strong and self-sufficient feisty women like her grandmother and her aunts who all heavily influenced the type of woman that Virginia would later become. In this new world that she was living in, even though she's only like 12 years old, she vowed that she would grow up to be a strong woman who didn't take shit from anyone who didn't rely on anyone, and most importantly, she would never love a man. She never wanted to be in the position her mom had been in, suffering just because she loved someone. And the satisfaction that she had felt when she stood up to Mac with the cast iron skillet convinced her that she could grow up to be someone that a powerful man feared. So as a teenager, she started using boys for anything and everything. (laughs) (laughs) It's like that share interview where they're like, are men useful? And she's like, for what? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) There can be fun. So despite being in the midst of the Great Depression, somehow Virginia always had money for makeup and clothes and candies, stuff most families didn't have, much less teenagers. And it turned out she was making all of this money by conning other kids out of any cash or goodies that they could get their hands on. She'd spent her entire life up until that point you know, watching her dad, a con man at work, so she knew how to do it. And then once she started having sex, she used that as a tool as well. Okay. She would have sex with other boys in exchange for cash or gifts, but she insisted that this wasn't sex work. 
is just a matter of a scrappy young girl providing for herself. Business, honey. Yeah. <laughs> Literally, that was her perspective yeah. is like, this is business. Which is sex work. Yes. <laughs> but it's okay. Whatever you want to call it. Quite literally, it's called yes. sex work. She started resenting her tiny little southern town. She thought she was bigger and better than everyone there. And she wanted to be a very wealthy, famous actress, which obviously wasn't going to happen in Georgia. No. So in 1931, when Virginia was only 14 years old, she marries a 16-year-old named George Randall, and they moved to Chicago together. Almost as soon as they arrive to Chicago, Virginia kicks her child groom to the curb. Their marriage was obviously not going to last for a number of reasons. Like one, they're both babies. Yes. Baby marriages don't last. And two, she was only using him to help her get out of her little hometown. And three, George had a big problem with the fact that despite being married, she continued having sex with boys. <laughs> He's like, Virginia, not again. <laughs> yeah. So it was just doomed from the start. She also said she was never going to fall in love with anybody. Right. So, yeah. You know. Eventually, Virginia got a job waitressing at a place called the San Carlo Italian Village. This was the meeting place for the Chicago outfit, a.k.a. Al Capone's gang. Mm-hmm. The boys. The boys. (laughs) Oh, wise guys. He was already serving his infamous sentence at Alcatraz by the time Virginia got this job. So, like, she didn't actually know him. But she really made a name for herself at this restaurant. Like, every capo, every maid guy, every boss, and all of their little errand boys wanted this very feisty, redheaded waitress. Because she was unlike all of the women that they were used to being around. She wasn't phased by the money they threw around Uh, The gifts they tried enticing her with, she didn't care about. And she definitely had no interest in being anyone's wife, girlfriend, or mistress. And obviously in the mafia, women fall into one of those three categories. But not her. She happily slept with any guy that she was interested in, but she refused to be used by any of them in any way. The few guys that she did sleep with reported that she was so detached and uninterested in getting anything from them other than sex that I think that just made her that much more alluring to the rest of them. Yeah, it's like a challenge. Yeah. She carried herself with just like so much confidence. She was very quick-witted. Her personality was as strong and violent as the professional criminals that she was serving. But she was also capable of staying out of the way and keeping her mouth shut. And that obviously means everything when it came to her being accepted into this underground world where you keep your mouth shut. Mm-hmm. She seems like the exact opposite of me. <laughs> oh, really? In every way. In every Just way. violent. Can't keep her mouth shut. <laughs> Badass. Uses men. <laughs> like, she sounds awesome. <laughs> she met and became best friends with Mimi Capone, um, who was Al's sister-in-law. Mimi took Virginia to all of the parties, all the nightclubs and family gatherings. She introduced her to every major player in the Chicago outfit, um, as well as politicians and actors and so forth. So Virginia was very well liked, whether it be in social settings or during her time working at the San Carlo. And she was proving over and over again that she could be trusted. So one guy in particular noticed all of this right away. Joe Epstein, who everyone called Joey Epp, was especially enthralled with Virginia. He was the accountant for the entire Chicago outfit, which means he was one of the highest of higher ups and definitely one of the most trusted because he handled millions of dollars on a weekly basis. Mm -hmm. So 
Joey Epp was actually secretly gay, so his interest in Virginia was not sexual or romantic. He spent years getting to know her, um, observing her, coming up with a plan to utilize her to, her skills to kind of benefit the outfit in some capacity. Yeah. And finally, he realized in 1934, it was becoming more and more challenging to launder money and smuggle jewels and furs and other items like that without getting too much attention from the authorities. Mm -hmm. I mean, his whole job is to make sure that the outfit is flush with laundered cash. So he decided to do something that had never happened in the history of organized crime. He offers a job to Virginia as a courier which just has never, It's this is a men's organization, so it was a pretty big deal. She would be responsible for going to racetracks, boxing matches, um, placing specific amounts on specific races, horses, boxers, mm-hmm. all that stuff. And then she would walk away with a 10% cut of the profits. So she was like, sign me up. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we'll do this, yeah. She probably wasn't as suspicious too, just because she's a female. No exactly. to look for her. Yeah, and so because of that, it made smuggling furs and jewels easier because she could wear them. Yeah. And then she could shove the ones that she's not wearing in her pockets and things like that. Whereas a guy, would it that requires so much creativity to smuggle jewels and furs. Smart business move. Yeah. So, you know, Virginia had no criminal record. She definitely wasn't the type of person that the authorities were looking out for. And she had spent years proving her loyalty, her intelligence, and she never seemed phased by the money that was thrown around her all the time, which for Joyette meant that she was less likely to steal any of the profits. And level-headed, probably. She definitely wasn't (laughs) level-headed. I just like her so much already. (laughs) I'm feeling complimentary. Virginia was given a complete makeover. You know, she needed to look very high class so that she wouldn't raise suspicions when she's making bets. She needed to look like she had the means to be betting money in the first place. Yeah. So she went from looking like a hungry, barefoot girl from a small town in Georgia to this very charismatic, trusted courier for the mafia, living in a luxury high-rise apartment in Chicago, literally dripping in jewelry and cash and furs basically overnight yeah so joey up had her start out with really small bets like dollar amounts that were so small it really wouldn't have mattered if she had stolen anything but she never did she never stole a dime not once so little by little the bets got larger the winnings became astronomical and soon virginia was making an unbelievable amount of money whether it was because he had maybe just had a soft spot for her or because she had agreed to be his beard or some other reason. Joey Epp was giving Virginia an allowance of $3,000 weekly. Wow. Which today is like $60,000. And that's in addition to her making 10% on all of her bets, which would usually mean she'd walk away with today's equivalent of like $10,000 per bet, you know, and she's doing a number each week. So she's... She's literally She's a millionaire. making so much money. Yeah. It's unfathomable. For the next two years, Virginia continued defying the odds, climbing the ranks of the most dangerous world of organized crime, something that historically only men were ever capable of doing. You know, she made a ton of money for the Chicago outfit. She was well-liked. She befriended many of the wives and girlfriends and mistresses. And she became so trusted by the higher ups that she'd sit in on meetings and most of the men spoke freely in front of her regarding hits and schemes and any other illegal plans. So she really just like assimilated into this world with so much ease. It was 
almost like she'd been born to do it. Sounds like it. And that's all a very big deal. I mean, I don't want to like glorify any of this because it's uh, just illegal illegal (laughs) and violent and terrible, but it is a big deal in many ways because women were just not equals. I mean, they are not equals within the mafia. The men have the control and the power. The women are either wives, girlfriends, or mistresses. And because it's an organization made up of men, women are rarely employed. And if they are, it's usually doing something like running a brothel or working as a sex worker in a mafia-owned brothel. But Virginia considered herself above the mafia's idea of women's work, and she never accepted anything less than a high-stakes money laundering job from them. To this day, no woman has ever been known to have reached the status within the mafia the way that Virginia Hill did. And the cherry on top, the authorities never caught wind of her. Like she was never linked to any aspect of the syndicate and that made her all the more valuable to them. So she continued flying high, but like completely invisible to the authorities. Yeah. So during a visit to Georgia to see her family, her little brother Chick begged her to take him to Chicago. They were so similar and so close. He really hated living in Georgia. He wanted to be an actor and his big sister's life looked so glamorous and she was so wealthy that he knew she could afford to take him with her. And because he was her favorite brother, she felt bad and so she agreed. So sometimes Chick worked as a courier and errand boy for the outfit, but his focus was more on trying to become an actor. And I guess despite her cushy income, Virginia also still wanted to be an actor. (laughs) So they would take like acting classes together. And sometimes they get cast in small parts. But for the most part, uh, neither of them was making it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. They're not big Hollywood stars. (laughs) No. Um, But everyone who knew Virginia at that time said that Chick was very protective of his big sister and always there by her side. Wherever she went, he was right there, too. So even though as a teenager, she did exchange sex for gifts and money, she insisted that that wasn't sex work. It was just sex on her terms. So as an adult, she was very vocal and proud of the fact that she still only had sex on her terms. She claimed to never accept cash or presents from any man she slept with. And the only times where she was technically getting paid for having sex was when the outfit requested that she get close to a man in order to spy on him. So she'd start dating the target and then report back any findings to her superiors. But even that was something she still considered to be on her terms. In fact, once during one of those spying jobs, after having sex with the target that she had been seeing for a few weeks, he gifted her a diamond bracelet and she flushed it down the toilet and said she wasn't a prostitute. (laughs) Wow. She was very trustworthy and capable of following orders. But I just feel like I'm like making her sound like she's so cool, but she was absolutely a sociopath. So I just want to oh, remind. Yeah, I'm like, God, I want to be more like Virginia. <laughs> As of today, I am her. <laughs> I'm adopting this personality. No, she was really violent. Oh. She did. Oh, oh like what'd she do? <laughs> She'd attack women who irritated her. Uh, well. She'd flip tables. Uh, she would seduce powerful criminals only to then sleep with their associates just to watch them become enraged with jealousy. Her favorite thing was to taunt dangerous men to push them as far as she could to see what they would do. I mean, she was 
a thousand percent addicted to the adrenaline that came with working for these people. Guys do this all the time. Like guys use girls all the time. So <laughs> I don't even think that makes her a sociopath. She's just getting even for all of us. <laughs> I'm, I like this. <laughs> So sometime in the late 1930s, the Chicago outfit decides Virginia is going to be sent to New York on what is a very dangerous spy job. Al Capone had been the boss of the Chicago outfit for many years, while his rival, Lucky Luciano, was the boss of the New York mafia. So both territories were very deadly and they never overlapped in any business. But now Al Capone was in Alcatraz. His mind was totally gone because he had syphilis. So the two territories decided it's time to try to forge a new relationship. Like, let's try to, let's get a do over here. I just like the fact that yesterday you're like, Otta, how do you spell syphilis? And I'm like, I didn't even ask why. I'm like, S-Y-P-H. <laughs> and yeah. now it makes sense. Now you know why. Uh, so they start kind of giving business back and forth. But the thing is, they're the enemy. So mm -hmm. they don't know for certain that the other side isn't skimming money off the top. Okay. You know? So Virginia's job was to move to New York, assimilate into their world, and report back to Chicago if she found out that any of the couriers in New York were stealing money. And if she ever discovered that they were, in fact, stealing, she needed to provide concrete proof to her higher-ups in Chicago who would then order a hit on the couriers. And she was like all on board with this. Yeah. Like socializing with, uh, sleeping with, working with deadly criminals was what her life had become. And now she was in charge of sleeping with what had always been considered the enemy. So she was just like, I love this journey for yeah. me. I'm going. She doesn't sound like she has a conscience. Definitely not. Hence why I keep saying sociopath. Yeah. I'm like, wait a second. So she doesn't feel bad about much. No. Oh my God. No. Like one time I didn't even bother including this because it was just like, ew, gross. She doesn't so give I'm a, tell you now. She doesn't. Yeah. So I'm going to tell you. She doesn't give a shit about anything so much. So that one time at a Christmas party, a guy dared her to give like one of the capos a blowjob in front of everybody. So she did it even though like the, every, this is a family affair, which is a very different thing. So the the guy's wife that she did it in front of so us. oral sex is not welcome at these parties with no i mean I, well, no that's not what i mean i mean like oh, like they have kidding. very different lives like you have a mistress you might have a girlfriend and you have a wife and you show your wife respect during family gatherings where the mistress never comes this is a family affair kind of thing this is christmas <laughs> yeah it's their anniversary yeah no it yeah. is so like it, you oh know if gosh. they're at a, if they're at having like a meeting or you know a gathering where the wives aren't welcome that kind of thing would happen but then to do it in front of the wife is, um, it's just like, an, it's, it's not tasteful it's to not, do it in front of the spouse. It's not really widely accepted. <laughs> Their roles are different than ours, clearly. But that's sort of who she was. Like, she didn't give a shit about anyone anything or anyone. anything. Yeah. At uh, all. All right. Well, she's kind of losing me now. <laughs> like, I can feel it kind of go away. My respect. So she's, uh out here living in New York, partying, sleeping with dudes and reporting back whether or not they deserve to be murdered. And then Chicago instructs her to get as close as possible to a specific Genovese capo. Oh, my favorite pasta. Yeah, Joey Adonis. So they suspected he may have been stealing, but he's so high up that they need concrete proof before doing anything because taking a hit out on someone like that without proof would literally start a war. Mm -hmm. So she and Adonis start dating. Um, many people said that their relationship actually seemed 
pretty good. Like they seem to just have a lot of fun. Uh, they seem to have respect for each other. And at least for Adonis, he seemed very smitten. And sometime during her time in New York, Virginia got a little black book and she started to record every transaction, every interaction, and any and all plans that the mafia made in her presence, plus any and all incriminating information she had on the most dangerous criminals in the country. But it wasn't just limited to New York. She also recorded everything she could about the Chicago outfit, you know, who she has uh-huh. like her actual loyalty to. This was her life insurance policy. She kept it safe and hidden and knew that if she obeyed orders, there was no reason to ever use it. But she also knew that this world she lives in is dangerous and can be unpredictable sometimes. And it's really every man for himself. So she made sure to document what she needed to so that in the event that she was killed, the country's entire organized crime syndicate would, would crumble. Yeah. yeah. It's to protect yourself even after assassination <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> oh. I just love the way you're just like, well, yeah, you have to do that. You, that's, that's necessary. <laughs> She's a good businesswoman. It is. That is a good businesswoman. So one night, she and Adonis are eating at a restaurant when an associate of his walks up and introduces himself to Virginia. He told her his name was Benjamin Siegel. He had very light hair, piercing blue eyes. He was very handsome and charismatic. And despite sitting there with her new boo, she was like, I'm I want it, I want this. it. Yes, and me, 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 <laughs> me, 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 <laughs> yeah. He told her everyone called him Bugsy, but she could call him Ben and then winked at her. She's like, I like Bugsy better. (laughs) Adonis was um, pissed. (laughs) Um, Even though he and Bugsy both worked on the same side, they despised each other. Like, Mm -hmm. they were total enemies. They hated each other so much. So it was obvious that Bugsy was only moving in on this new chick to make Adonis mad because there's, you know, nothing more disrespectful and cutting than stealing your girl out from a Yeah, (laughs) eliminating your property. (laughs) And um, again, on brand, Virginia really doesn't give a shit. And she's so into Bugsy that they meet up the next night and they go out to dinner. And she said he was the best sex that she had ever had. And when Adonis finds out, he was furious. He beat her severely and sent her back to Chicago and then went to Lucky Luciano, the boss at the time, and demanded that he banish Bugsy from New York once and for all. Luciano agreed, so Bugsy was sent to California and, you know, Virginia went back to Chicago. Her one job was to stay in the good graces of Joey Adonis, so she messed up big time. By sleeping with this guy. Big, big, big time. Can you imagine her little black book gets found and the one thing that's written on Bugsy Seagull is, or Seagull, (laughs) Seagull is best sex I've ever had, asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. (laughs) That'd be funny. So Benjamin Bugsy Siegel was born February 28th, 1906. So he's a Pisces. He grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and he seemed to just be involved in gangs and criminal activities since he was very, very young. Mm -hmm. As an adult, he became a hitman for the mafia. He made a massive fortune and a name for himself as a bootlegger during Prohibition. He was handsome, charismatic, and in the beginning of his criminal career, he was generally well-liked by his associates. But he ended up becoming one of the most dangerous sociopaths from his era. He'd shoot people for looking at him wrong. Other times just for disagreeing with him. 
once during a card game, he thought the guy across the room was cheating. So he pulled out a gun, shot the man dead, and then dealt another round laughing. His signature kill was two shots to the head and one shot to the heart. Some people just have like signature drinks, I you know? know? <laughs> I was also thinking like, what a counterproductive thing if you're a hitman for the mafia. You shouldn't have any signature or anything. anything, yeah. <laughs> no. It's like leaving a souvenir with your fingerprint on it. Right. There wasn't a very strong mafia presence in California at the time, and Adonis had a little more sway than Bugsy did. So the decision to send him to the West Coast was made with multiple things in mind. Like New York had really hoped to expand to Los Angeles, and then Bugsy's volatile antics would be far away, therefore less drama to deal with in New Mm -hmm. York. So it was just kind of, for many reasons, it made sense. And that's why Luciano was like, oh, no problem. I'm going to send him away. Gotcha. So when Virginia finally got back to Chicago, the outfit punished her by eliminating her allowance, kicking her out of the apartment they paid for her to live in, and limiting the amount of money she was allowed to bet, therefore the amount of money she made for a living, because she had only got, you know, she'd only get 10%. So this ultimately meant that she had no choice but to leave Chicago entirely. Her antics in New York you know, like angering someone like Joey Adonis resulted in Chicago and New York's plans to merge to completely fall through. One woman having that power. And they went back to being very bloody enemies. And some people considered a war started after that. I don't really think it was that extreme, but she foiled the plans. There could have been peace among criminals. She was in major (laughs) doo-doo. It's so crazy thinking that this one woman could have changed the course of history. In massive ways like that. Yeah, I mean. It was a one one night stand. Yeah. If you think about it. But it was the best sex she ever had. Yeah, it was worth it. <laughs> Whatever you do it. So she went to Georgia and uh, spent an extended amount of time with her family trying to figure out what the hell to do now. And one night while she was sitting in a bar, she met a cute young guy named Ossie Griffin. He was a well-known quarterback in college and he was the heir to some huge family fortune. So obviously she sunk her claws in without hesitation. And the next day they were married. But six months went by before she learned that her new hubby was not yet old enough to access any of his stress funds. So she got the marriage annulled. She got married 24 hours after meeting him? Yeah. What the heck is... Oh, Oh, I mean, she took... I didn't want to... There's so much like sex comments in this that I started like eliminating some of them. But Uh. she literally... Like they met in the bar went out and had sex in the car and then as soon as the courthouse opened they got married got married (laughs) so she was the best sex he's ever had then clearly (laughs) i would assume some small town quarterback would definitely find her to be the best sex that's probably the first sex he'd ever had (laughs) so now she's got to try to come up with a plan to get back in the good graces of chicago she decides she's gonna go to mexico and she'll do what she does best She's going to dance, charm, and sleep her way into the upper echelon of Mexican drug lords. Then she will go to Chicago and offer to use her newfound connection to traffic heroin into the States. And her plan actually works like a charm. Yeah, I'm going to say that would work. She becomes very close to these big drug lords. Chicago accepts her back. And now Virginia spends her time traveling between Chicago and Mexico, making a boatload of money again. But even though she has spent her entire life working as a criminal, she still aspires to be an actor. So she starts to spend a lot of time in Los Angeles doing the usual, integrating into elite circles and stuff like that. Except this time it's just a bunch of actors rather than a bunch of criminals. 
At some point during her time in Mexico, she had met a musician named Carlos Valdez and they got married. And Carlos wanted her to stop working and settle down and have his kids. And of course, she's like, no, no, you don't get it. She was like, I'm not about that life. So instead, she made a bunch of backdoor deals to get her husband booked on as many gigs as possible. So that meant that soon enough, he was like constantly traveling the world. So they just they never saw each other. This woman. Then sometime in 1939, Bugsy and Virginia reconnect in Los Angeles after running into each other at a party thrown by the actor George Raft. They'd only spent one night together quite a few years prior, but Virginia never forgot the blue-eyed gangster, and they started seeing each other immediately. And I mean that literally. As soon as they saw each other at this party, they went to a guest room and spent the rest of the night in there. (laughs) Why waste any time? This party's boring. (laughs) So Bugsy had been sent to California to try to expand New York's territory, but instead he took it for himself. Even though he was a pretty successful hitman for New York, he had always aspired to be the top boss, to make a name for himself in another territory that was all his own. And that seemed to be happening in California pretty quickly. He was covering racetracks, uh, boxing matches. He controlled multiple Hollywood studio executives, uh, various unions, and it was just it seemed to just continue to grow day by day. What Bugsy didn't know is that Virginia was ordered to specifically seek Bugsy out in Los Angeles in order to spy on him. Both Chicago and New York wanted to figure out how to take control of the West Coast and they needed her to get insider knowledge to do it. And obviously because she doesn't give a shit and she's very into him, she doesn't hesitate to to do that. Even though he ultimately ruined her Chicago life. But I mean, that was her decision. She can't blame him for that. I love that even then she's just like, no, I'm still into him. Yeah. (laughs) God, she's so cool. So she starts to spy on him, but they are both professional criminals. (laughs) She has this new connection in Mexico. Bugsy is essentially the most prominent presence of organized crime in Los Angeles. So what started out as spying turned into her really joining forces with him instead. I mean, they were experts at swindling and laundering money and intimidating people into complying. So throughout most of the early 1940s, Bugsy and Virginia started to establish themselves as a notorious criminal couple that you could run into on a movie set or a party in the Hollywood Hills. Um, Her little brother Chick worked for Bugsy in various capacities, and he described his relationship with the older gangster as being like a father-son type of relationship. Okay. So Bugsy and Virginia bought a mansion at 810 Linden Drive in Beverly Hills. Mm -hmm. Uh, They bought another one in Miami. They invested in casinos in Mexico and took full control of most acting unions, the racetracks, and they used Virginia's connections in Mexico to funnel heroin into Hollywood. And so despite her childhood vow that she would never love a man, she fell deeply in love with Bugsy. But she still had that annoying husband who, even though they never see each other, (laughs) refused to give Virginia a divorce. So she figured out a plan to deal with that. When the mafia opened up a nightclub in New York City called Hurricane to use as another method of laundering, they put Virginia in charge of the opening. So she booked her husband as the permanent performer. And then on the night of the opening, when he was distracted, she handed him a contract for the nightclub gig and he signed it without looking closely. And she had tricked him into signing divorce papers. And then she hopped on a plane back to L.A., back to Bugsy. (laughs) 
So the relationship between she and Bugsy was violent, to say the least. They fought constantly. They both beat the shit out of each other on a regular basis. Okay. She loved taunting him and making him jealous with other men. He wouldn't leave his wife, yet threatened to kill her, Virginia, if he ever caught her with another man. And That's fair. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. God. I mean, she was like beyond attracted to him and she did love him, but they sound toxic. More than I'm anything, she doesn't limb. get more than anything, she doesn't care. She does not give a shit about anything. So she still slept with lots of other men. And that mutual friend of yours, the actor George Raff, the guy mm-hmm. who had initially kind of brought them back together in yeah. LA. He later said that sleeping with Virginia was the most exhilarating experience because they both knew that at any moment, Bugsy could burst through the door and shoot them both right there in the bed. I can't. I feel like that wouldn't work for me. (laughs) (laughs) I read that and I was just like, God damn, there's not a single healthy person in this story. Seriously. (laughs) You guys are all need therapy. You all are toxic. (laughs) I love that. So in 1945... Many of Virginia's friends said that she seemed to be done with Bugsy for good. New York and Chicago were taking more and more of his territory in L.A. He was running out of his own cash, so he would take Virginia's and gamble it away. She wanted to marry him, but was so sick of waiting around because, you know, despite the fact that they'd been together for like five years at this point, he still refused to divorce his wife. It was just, you know, so she's just I was going to say they never do, but I don't really know. And then one day during a huge argument in their home in Beverly Hills, Virginia packed up her bags and went to her car to leave him for good. Bugsy followed her out, screaming the whole way. And when she turned and threw her house keys at him, she told him he was bad in bed. And then he got she got into the driver's seat to drive away. And he um, he didn't receive that well. <laughs> he grabbed her by the hair. Oh, no dragged her inside and beat her severely and then took her upstairs and raped her. And then he left her there, took some money from her purse and went to a friend's to gamble for the evening. Obviously this effectively ended their relationship. Yeah. (laughs) And a few days later, Virginia tipped off the police to Bugsy's location and they arrested him for bookmaking. And then after this, the LAPD tailed him, wherever he went in LA, which directly impacted his hold on the city. So he needed to figure out where to go and how to make a living now because LA was just sort of like not an option to him. He messed with the wrong chick. So that is when he set his sights on Las Vegas. At the time, Vegas was just a tiny dirt town. There was quite literally nothing, but Bugsy believed it could be flipped into a major tourist destination. World War II had ended and everyone wanted to party. So he saw a big need for a new like adult playground of sorts, like something similar to Atlantic City, but on the West Coast. And in many ways, Bugsy Siegel put Vegas on the map and he really paved the way for it to be what it is today. A safe, clean adult (laughs) playground. (laughs) So he convinced the New York Mafia to loan him a million dollars to construct a massive casino resort. He named it the Flamingo because he believed they were Mm. lucky and because Flamingo was his nickname for Virginia. Bugsy was a professional gangster. Like, I mean, he knew how to do that. But overseeing the construction of a massive resort was not something he knew how to do. So the site was constantly getting robbed, you know, delaying the process significantly. 
But he also skimmed a lot of the money off the loan and he would give it to Virginia to deposit into a Swiss bank account. Like they weren't together anymore, but all mm-hmm. of their business and money had been tied up together. And obviously she's not going to say no to yeah. money. So she she would take it and deposit it for them. The million dollar loan he got from New York, which today would be more like $14 million, continued to increase by the day until eventually the total cost to build the resort had ballooned to $6 million dollars which would be close to like $88 million today. So New York was like kind of irate. Yeah. <laughs> like a little bit. They're pissed. Like a little bit mad about this. Bugsy was being pressured into opening the resort ASAP. Um, New York didn't care that the rooms weren't ready or that the plumbing wasn't complete or that there were exposed wires everywhere. So on December 26th, 1946, the doors opened to every major star, gangster, politician, anyone of notoriety from that era. And because the construction wasn't done, it was a massive flop. He was forced to close it the first week of January of 1947, complete the construction, and then reopen like in mid-February. And then on top of that, I don't understand how gambling works anyways, but somehow in the first few months of being opened, anyone who gambled at the Flamingo always won. (laughs) (laughs) It was a crowd favorite. So the casino was in the red for $300,000 Almost immediately, which is around $3 million today. It's not good. It's not good. It's not good. And as much as I don't, I hope it goes without saying I don't agree with the mafia, like in all ways. But even as I was reading that, like the cost of it, just the way he just messed Mm. it up so bad. I was like, damn, bucks, he's got to go. Yeah, seriously. What a loser. (laughs) (laughs) Sometime in March of 1947, Bugsy finally divorced his first wife. And I guess that's all he needed to do to win Virginia back. And she forgave the whole uh, rape thing, the I rape guess. The rape abuse thing. Yeah. According to her brother, Chick, the couple got married in Mexico a few weeks later. And Chick moved to Vegas for a while to work at the casino and help Bugsy oversee everything. And then on June 8th, 1947, Joey Epp, the guy from Virginia's early years in Chicago, called her and told her that she needed to come to Chicago immediately. All we know is that she did it. We don't know what he said to her or her attitude about it. She just did what she was told and she flew to Chicago. Bugsy Chick and Chick's fiance, a girl named Jerry Mason, stayed back in L.A. Virginia called Bugsy on June 16th and told him that the Chicago outfit was sending her to Paris to buy wine and that she'd be back in L.A. sometime soon. Four days later, on June 20th, 1947, Bugsy took Chick, Jerry, and an associate named Alan Smiley to a dinner at a place called Jack's Cafe um, in Ocean Park. Mm -hmm. And they returned to Bugsy and Virginia's home on Linden Drive in Beverly Hills at approximately 10.40 p.m. Chick and Jerry went upstairs. Bugsy and Alan sat on opposite ends of the sofa in the living room. And Bugsy was reading a copy of the Los Angeles Times when suddenly he was shot from behind. Alan was grazed in the arm by a bullet and immediately like dove to the ground. But Bugsy was killed immediately. He yeah. was shot in the head a couple of times and in the neck and stuff. Like he was, He's there was no surviving it. Chick and Jerry ran downstairs, but whoever shot Bugsy through the window was long gone by then. Quite a few theories have floated around about his murder. Uh, one theory is that this was a mafia hit, like revenge for costing them so much with the flamingo okay another theory is that bugsy was tied up in some love triangle and the scorned lover like killed him i don't buy it 
And another theory is that Virginia ordered the hit as like a long con revenge plan for raping her. And another theory is that Chick actually killed Bugsy for what he'd done to his sister and that the mafia didn't retaliate because they wanted Bugsy dead anyways. But regardless, Mm -hmm. uh, Bugsy Siegel's murder is unsolved to this day. My vote is one or four. Yeah, I... A, a, yeah. answer a or d the lover the lover scorned thing like that's no i don't believe that but i don't think she even did it like uh as a way to get back at him i, I don't, don't see think she, that i don't think she did either because i mean obviously she's never going to comment publicly and there's no record of anyone close to her speaking out on what she may or may not have known about bugsy's assassination or her reaction yeah. to it but it is really telling that she obeyed orders and went to europe to yeah. buy wine on behalf of yeah, yeah. i agree All that is known actually about her is that when she came back to the U.S., she went to her home in Miami because obviously she couldn't go back to L.A. And her home was actually photographed being heavily secured with alarm systems and huge floodlights. She started going everywhere with guards, like security guards. For the next few months, Virginia seemed completely out of control. She attempted suicide four times in the first six weeks after Bugsy's death. Wow. And she became more and more paranoid and violent. She'd pull guns on other guests during dinner parties. She accused longtime trusted associates of spying on her, and she was always drunk. She was regularly thrown out of restaurants and clubs, and there were rumors that she had actually become such a loose cannon that the mafia had put out a hit on her, but nothing happened because after Bugsy's death, she was finally on the FBI's radar. So for the first time ever, she was tailed wherever she went, um, all her phones were tapped. So if there had been a hit put out on her, um, the FBI's presence completely deterred any potential hitmen that were following mm-hmm. her. So the next couple of years, it seems like she didn't work so much for the mob anymore. She just sort of bounced around living in different places. Eventually, she went to Sun Valley, Idaho in 1950, and she falls for her ski instructor. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this guy named Hans Hauser. They elope within weeks of meeting. Uh, Hans quits his job and they live off all the money that Virginia had been stashing away for years. So they were pretty comfortable. Mm-hmm. But because the FBI was monitoring her very closely, they look into Hans' citizenship and decided to try to get him deported. Because Hans was a suspected Nazi sympathizer, oh. he was not allowed to stay in the U.S. unless he was employed. And because he had stopped working as a ski instructor when he married his sugar mama, like he was totally screwed. So Virginia's entire life, she showed loyalty to herself and no one else with the exception of the mafia because she knew better than to bite the hand that feeds you, you know? Of course. However, by the time she met Hans, she was totally done with the mob and all the jobs they offered her. So she did something extreme. She went to a reporter confessed to being associated with every member of the organized crime world and explained what kind of incriminating information was in her little black book. She told the reporter that if the FBI wanted this book, she would happily hand it over in exchange for her husband's citizenship. Wow. But her gamble backfired. Okay. The FBI decided to hang her out to dry and didn't want the book. And now the entire mob knew that not only did Virginia have this book, but she was willing to sell it for the right price. So they turned their backs on her, ordered a hit on her life, but she was so closely monitored it wasn't successful. 
this little public antic of hers got the attention of Senator Kefauver, a guy who had recently started going after well-known crime bosses. So she is called to testify during a televised Kefauver committee hearing on March 16, 1951. The papers described her arrival as if she were a movie star arriving to a premiere. Yeah. She walked in very gracefully, head held high, wearing gloves and a mink coat and a large hat. Like mm-hmm. She's like a celebrity walking in. She's grilled about every associate, how she has jewels and furs, where her money comes from and so forth. And she had nothing to gain by telling the truth. So she lied about her involvement in the mob and all of her associations. She figured that at the very least, this might sway the mob to spare her life. She downplayed her relationship with Bugsy, claiming it was casual and short-lived. She claimed all of her money, jewels, and furs were gifts from men that she had dated, but that she didn't know how any of them made their money. Mm -hmm. Once she was done and left the courtroom, she got angry because she was so hounded by photographers and reporters that she could barely walk out of the room. So she ended up punching a female reporter in the face, (laughs) shoving anyone who got near her. And then finally, before closing the car door, turned and yelled at everyone that she hoped an atomic bomb landed on all of them. Okay. She's upset. Yeah. (laughs) So after this testimony, the IRS looks into Virginia's life and an arrest warrant is issued when they determined that she owed the IRS more than $500,000 in back taxes which would be like $5.2 million today. She was placed as number three on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. And occasionally she would move up to slot number one whenever the first and second people were apprehended. <laughs> but she stayed at three for the most you, part. For the most part, it was yeah. number three. So obviously, Virginia and her hubby and their new baby, Peter, fled the country. And for the next 15 years, they lived in Austria evading authorities. Not a lot is known about her life there. It is known that she attempted suicide many times. She became an alcoholic. She and Han separated once or twice, but stayed married. She raised her son and she supported them with the money she and Bugsy had deposited into their Swiss bank account during the construction of the Flamingo. Smart. She became more and more paranoid as time went on. Obviously, she had lived a hard and traumatic life. And the violence that she had grown used to and even sometimes reveled in was finally taking its toll on her. And she spent the last few years of her life extremely paranoid, drunk, violent, severely depressed, and desperate to die. She attempted suicide so many times and someone always intervened. So some, oh, something wow. always prevented it from happening. happening. So by early 1966, many of the gangsters that she had known and worked with back in her heyday were either now dead or in jail or retired or in hiding themselves. She regularly told those around her that all she wanted was to die by suicide, but every time she did, someone saved her. So in early March of 1966, her husband found her unresponsive after swallowing a bottle of sleeping pills and he rushed her to the hospital and saved her. A few days later, on March 22nd, Virginia took a train to Naples, Italy to speak to Joey Adonis in person, the capo from New York who she had cheated on with um, Bugsy. Bugsy. She offered him a deal. She said that she would hand over her little black book if he agreed to help her pay all that she owed the IRS in back taxes. That way she could go back into the U.S. without being imprisoned. 
According to Adonis, he said that they had lunch. They caught up. He declined her offer. He gave her $10,000 in cash to help her with living expenses. And he said that the last time he saw her, she was boarding a train to go back to Austria. But two days later, on March 24th, 1966, a hiker in Koppel, Austria, found Virginia's lifeless body laying peacefully underneath a tree as if she were sleeping. Her fur coat had been removed, folded neatly next to her on the ground, and a note was found inside that said something along the lines of her being just too tired to keep living. And she was only 49. Wow. She lived like four lifetimes. Yeah. The autopsy showed that she had died of suicide by an overdose of sleeping pills, but oddly, it didn't state any other details. And everyone accepted that because her entire life she had attempted suicide by ingesting sleeping pills so often that this just made perfect sense to everybody. But the day that Virginia's body was found, Joey Epstein, the you know her oldest friend who had first brought her into the mafia, received a package from Virginia in the mail. Inside of it was her little black book and a note that read, in case of an emergency or my death. So given how she would have had to mail that to Joey Epp several weeks prior to meeting Adonis in Naples, I think that this shows that she knew the meeting would probably mean life or death for her. 25 years after her death in the early 1990s, an original autopsy report from Austria was discovered, and in it, it noted several bruises around Virginia's neck and that she didn't die of a sleeping pill overdose, but of poison. Joey Adonis was known for using a certain type of poison in the past to get rid of people. And so I think it seems very plausible that after she blackmailed him in person, he poisoned her and dumped her body in Austria, knowing that it would likely be viewed as a suicide. Then obviously, if the autopsy report that came out in the 90s is real, it means that he or an associate intervened and made the coroner write a new one with misleading Mm -hmm. details. So I think clearly Virginia knew she was walking into a very deadly environment by going to Naples and propositioning Adonis the way that she did. It kind of made me wonder, like in the most morbid of ways, if she was doing this intentionally to basically die by suicide, but at the hands of someone who would make sure this one really happened. Yeah. Unlike her past attempts. exactly, And that's just me speculating. No one has any idea what really happened. So Joe Epstein, he died in 1976. But before he did, he gave Virginia's little black book to a trusted friend who wasn't directly within the mob. And that friend still has it to this day. And over the years, they have actually released like snippets of it for public record. Virginia's husband, Hans, died in 1974 from suicide. And then later her son, Peter, died in a car accident in 1994. And they are all buried together in Austria. And I'm sure it's redundant to even say this, but the mafia is the very definition of a violent crime. Yes. (laughs) And given that Virginia grew up in a violent environment, surrounded by people who made a living as criminals, it is understandable that she stayed within the only world she ever really knew. And hers is a very sad story. And as much as she did some pretty epic trailblazing, there is no documentation of any woman with an organized crime who has ever reached Virginia Hill status since then. That's interesting. So that's the story on Virginia Hill. 
And my um my person <laughs> my personal connection oh, yeah, yeah. to the story. Um growing up, my aunt lived a couple doors down from us. Uh her house was like really fun. Our families were really close. And my cousins and I spent lots of time at each other's houses and so forth. And as a kid, I never noticed anything weird at their house. And I don't think that any of them I did either. Mm-hmm. But after everyone grew up and moved away, the house became, you know, like that quieter, like typical empty nester type home. Yeah. When I was 14. So that would have been in 2004. Mm-hmm. One of my older cousins had had a baby and moved back in with her mom, the aunt who lived a couple doors down from us. And so I started babysitting for her pretty regularly. And I mean, this house was so familiar and comfortable to me. I was regularly going over there from the time I was born. So this just felt like another house of mine. Yeah. But for the first time, I started to feel really weird being there. And at first I just talked it up to like, well, I guess I've never really spent time here alone. Like if I'm over here, I'm with like a lot of family and Mm -hmm. right now it's just me and a baby. So maybe I'm... I felt alone or something. Maybe that's what it was. It started out as just like a very weird feeling, like the feeling of being watched or suddenly the hair standing on the back of my neck, but I don't know why. And Mm -hmm. I would have this like inexplicable need to leave the room that I was in. I just like, it just felt very. You were not welcome there. Uh, No, it didn't feel like that. And I didn't feel it every time. Like, and when I babysat, it wasn't always at their house. Sometimes my cousin would come to my house. Okay. But because we were only a couple of houses apart, like there were plenty of times that I would leave him with my parents at my house and then pop back into my aunt's to grab like more diapers or clothes or like something else for him. And it was always those specific times that I was going alone, knowing no one else was in the house. And as soon as I would get to the door, I would feel what I can only describe as a very icy, cold feeling of fear. Wow. So I would just like run in and grab what I needed and then get back out as fast as possible. But then like when other people were in the house, I never felt like that. So it was, it was just, yeah. So their house was a single story ranch style. Their porch was long and narrow and ran along the length of, of like the front of the house. And their kitchen was at the front of the house and it had multiple windows that looked out onto the front yard. So basically when you would step onto the porch, you would have to pass the entire length of the kitchen before reaching the front door. Mm -hmm. So if someone was walking up, you would see them and then they would probably see you through the window too. So if you were inside, it was normal to see someone coming and then get to the door before they've even knocked because you see them coming up. And I literally cannot tell you how many times I would be in the kitchen, preoccupied, cleaning up or making food or whatever. And I would see out of the corner of my eye, a man walking along the porch towards the front door. So instinctually, I would just like start walking towards the front door only to find no one was there. But there's nowhere to go once you get to the front door. You're like in this enclosed porch. And now the only way to leave is to go back along the kitchen, which is totally visible to you as the person who is inside. Yeah. There's just like nowhere to hide. There's nowhere to go. But I was always distracted when it happened and no one was ever there. So I just would wrote like write. I, yeah, I just wrote it off the way you write things off. Yeah. You know? And then one day I was sitting in the front living room, rocking my little cousin to sleep in the rocking chair. It was just us. It was very quiet and calm. Everything felt normal. 
So I'm rocking, rocking. He's fully asleep on my chest and I closed my eyes. I didn't fall asleep. I want to be clear so nobody's like, oh, that's dangerous. Yeah. I didn't fall asleep. I was just like Closing your eyes. holding a sleeping baby and I was kind of like soaking up the snuggles. It's the middle of the day. I'm not tired. The room has huge floor to ceiling windows. So it's very, very bright. And my eyes are literally just closed for maybe a minute tops. But in that minute, I felt and heard the weight and the footsteps of someone enter the room, walk towards us, and stand over the rocking chair. And I don't know how to explain it other than it was a man. And he, violent is the only word that I can think of. It just radiated male energy in a very dangerous feeling. Aggressive way. We were completely alone in that house. No one else was expected to be there. And on top of that, there were no men living there. It was just my aunt and my cousin and their mm -hmm. baby. You know, it's like there, were, there weren't even any men there. So it took me a split second to feel the presence of someone walk in, approach us, recognize it as a man, feel like we were being threatened somehow. And my heart is racing so fast. Like it explodes. Mm -hmm. It's racing so fast that it feels like it's stopped. Mm -hmm. My hands and armpits are just like drenched so. in sweat. I'm like just, I was Fear. paralyzed. So my eyes snap open and no one was there. But I could still feel him standing over us and looking at my face. So I'm staring at an empty space, but I can feel this is, it's so strong. It's like I'm seeing a person, but I'm not seeing anybody. The only way I can describe it is as if you know, like a person is standing close to you. You can see them. You can feel their presence in so many ways. And then they just put on like an invisibility cloak from Harry Potter and suddenly you can't see them, Oof, but yeah. you can still feel them right there because they're yes. still right there. I get it. So my logical mind is so confused, but my body can like feel it, like knows that something's happening. And it was, it was the scariest, most perplexing feeling I've ever had. Like, you know, those times where you you get so scared, you just completely freeze. Like you don't scream or you don't react. You don't yeah. jump or move away or anything. So it just looks like you weren't startled at all, but really on the inside, you were just paralyzed with fear. Mm -hmm. That's how it felt. And I can't even tell you how long I sat there feeling this like energy standing above us. It could have been seconds or minutes. And then eventually it just sort of dissipated. And then I stood up and left the room. So after that, I avoided being there alone and I started watching my cousin at my house more often. And then one day we're at my house. I realized I'd forgotten the bottle of children's Tylenol at his house. And I was so frustrated with myself for forgetting it on the counter because I knew I had needed to bring it with him because he wasn't feeling well. Yet I totally spaced and I was, I had intentionally tried to pack everything up so that I didn't have to go back over there by myself. Yeah. And the poor little guy was so sick. So I just didn't have a choice. Uh, I left him with my mom. I went to the house. I walked in fast. I grabbed the bottle off the counter and I walked back out. As I'm leaving and I'm about to lock the front door, I turn and I grab the handle with one hand and I have the key in my other hand. And as I'm pulling the door closed, the door gets yanked open into the house as I'm pulling it. And before I even have time to comprehend it, I just gripped it as tight as I could and I pulled it at me with all of my strength. 
and I shut it and lock it and I just bolt back to my house. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this had never happened to me before. I thought I was in the clear since I had popped in fast and nothing had happened and I didn't feel anything weird. But the way that my body like reacted to the door being jerked back so violently, it was as if something inside of me had anticipated it and I was already holding onto the door so tightly that I didn't let it open all the way. So it's like holding the door and someone just pulls as hard as you can, but you'd like to just pulled back Leaned tighter. Back. And this wasn't like, this was not a slight breeze or gravity kind of letting the door fall open. I was actively pulling it towards me. And yet with the strength of a person on the other side of the door, trying to pull it open aggressively, the door yanked and it yanked me forward. So had I not been hanging on tightly or I lost my footing, I would have fallen into the door, like into the house, you yeah. know? So those are um, just a few of the experiences I had there. There are some others that I'm not going to go into because it involves other people, but I totally believe in my gut that it's haunted. There is a very distinct energy inside of that house, um, or at least in certain areas of it that I can't describe, but I can feel it in my bones. So I stopped going over there altogether. Yeah. And then over time, my other family members started talking and we all realized that everyone regularly saw that figure of the man walking along the porch. And eventually the family members who lived in the house started experiencing their own scary things. And I'm not going to share any of those details because they're not my stories to tell. I didn't ask them for permission and some of them were very personal and really frightening. Okay. But I will say scary things began happening so frequently in that house and to so many different family members that eventually my aunt went to the neighbor directly across from her, this older gentleman named Perry, who had lived there since the 1950s. And she asked him if he knew any history on the home, like who had lived there before and so forth. And he so casually goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Back in the 70s, a man living there shot his wife to death in the front living room. Actually, I was the one who found her and I called the cops. Like, Perry, come on. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> By the way, I found the bodies. <laughs> he said it so casually as if he had just remembered like this like mundane detail about yeah. his day. And he'd lived across the street from my aunt for decades. Like super friendly neighbor. Never made Never mentioned it. Yeah. What a scarer. <laughs> it's like he forgot. Like it was like didn't matter to him. Yeah. So he just didn't say anything. The only personal details that he could remember was that the couple had only recently gotten married uh, they'd lived there for a few months when it happened and that the man's name was Charles Hill, but he went by the nickname Chick. Oh, the brother. The brother. So my family started digging deep. We went to the library and went through those like old slides on a computer, like it's in like the movies, movie. like just I in the movies. That. Like we saw all these like old newspaper yeah. prints and we found all the articles from local papers that had uh, reported oh on it God, at the time that. it was like so exciting and that's how we found out that this person named charles hill was actually the brother of virginia, virginia hill yeah so it turns out that after virginia had fled to austria her brother chick bounced around he was very paranoid that he would be targeted by the mafia so he was always in hiding and never stayed in one place for too long in 1971 when chick was 44 he married a girl named Jane, who was 27. Chick was working at a tire shop somewhere in the Bay Area, and they rented this house in a suburb 
directly across from that man named Perry. Perry said that Jane seemed nice enough, but he didn't really interact with her much. Chick, on the other hand, seemed insane. (laughs) He would babble incoherently. Sometimes he would mumble stuff about the mafia being inside the ceiling of his house. He spooked very easily. And one time, he knocked on Perry's door and he asked him where to get a gun. And when Perry asked why he needed it, he said he needed it to kill his wife and maybe put a bullet inside of himself. And Perry was like, okay, well, thanks for stopping by. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I don't know, sir. He didn't do anything. Have a good day. I was like, I would have called the police immediately. Yes, 100%. Perry and I are different people. So Then on July 20th, 1972, Perry pulled into his driveway and saw Chick, fully nude, drinking a root beer and walking down the street away from the house. You know, a naked uh, root beer stroll. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, they're so good, aren't they? That's like a wine walk, but better. Perry went inside and called Chick's wife, Jane. And when she didn't pick up, he decided to go across the street to see if everything was okay. The front door was wide open. And when he stepped inside the front living room, the one where I had been rocking my little cousin to sleep, he found Jane's body slumped over a chair. She'd been shot in the head and there were bullet holes in all of the walls and all along the ceiling. So Perry calls the police and it turned out that so many people had already called the cops to complain about the naked man walking around the neighborhood drinking a root beer that they had already picked him up for indecent exposure. They didn't even know that he had just killed just his wife. someone. Yeah. Chick had spent the last few years uh, before this happened very paranoid. He regularly told people he thought the mafia was after him because of what he knew about Bugsy's death. And apparently before he killed Jane, a producer in Los Angeles had reached out to him about creating a movie on the life of his famous sister, Virginia, who had died six years earlier. And in his insane mind... Chick thought he first needed to kill the mafia people who he believed were in his ceiling and then kill his wife, who he believed was spying on him for the mob. And he went to prison for her murder. And I don't know what happened to him, whether he ever got out or if he died in jail. Like, we couldn't ever find anything on him. Okay. That is absolutely nuts. Nuts butts, if you will. You've told me about the neighbor that was like, yeah, some guy knocked on my door and asked for a gun. And I was like, okay, bye. (laughs) I remember hearing that clip, but I didn't know anything about you being in the house and feeling a presence. Yeah. As you would. Yeah. Yeah. My aunt ended up moving away. She left. I don't blame her. Yeah. I don't blame her at all. Ashley has an incredible ability of feeling spirits. They communicate (laughs) with her. I'm not making fun of I'm serious. She is a witch. (laughs) (laughs) She can predict things too, by the way. I think we all got a little witch in us. Yeah, we... Don't you think? It's... Also, I'm not claiming to be a witch. (laughs) I am. I'm claiming Ashley's a witch. No, it's a great skill to have. It's incredible. Every time we go to a tarot card reading, every single person says the same thing. Well, they don't say I'm a witch. No, but they say you're able to communicate. I just, I'm very sensitive. You're sensitive. I'm very, very sensitive and I can walk into a space and like feel the energy mm-hmm. and there's, but I think lots of people feel that they just disregard it or ignore it or chalk it up to something else, but I don't ignore it. You so take then, note of it. Yeah. Which is really cool. Yeah. Well, that was an incredible story. I really liked it. Did you? Yeah. I didn't know He's, anything about the mafia. Other is than that I, why you're so inspired by her? <laughs> Cause you don't actually know anything about I the mafia. I don't know about, I don't know about, I, it's never been like a topic that, um, 
like I was drawn to researching. Oh. All I knew was that I wanted to be like a mob boss's wife when I was younger. <laughs> like I thought that was like the coolest, like e- even in uh, traffic when Catherine Zeta-Jones' husband gets literally yeah. <laughs> arrested in front of her and it's very traumatic. I was like, God, the alert just felt sexy. <laughs> does, does it not? I could see as um, a youth that doesn't know anything finding it's like, what it is sexy it, somehow. Yeah, but, what does an eight-year-old know about sex appeal? Yeah. But I'm like, that's it. They have <laughs> that's it. That's what it is. Well, Marlon Brando and The Godfather. Like I even as the old man, I was like, I know. Bada bing, bada boom. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyways, very interesting. Yeah, makes me want to learn more. So that says something. Yeah, that 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 was my yeah, intention. That's the whole goal of this. <laughs> Oh, I was trying to f- I was trying to find a Godfather quote for you oh. <laughs> to end this with. Hit me with it. I'm gonna I'm gonna make him an offer you can't refuse. <laughs> <laughs> and then he scratches his chin like that <laughs> with his bass, his like trout yeah. upside down mouth. Anyways, that's it for me. Okay, I'll see you next week. I'll see you next week <laughs> okay, too. Bye. I love you. Love you. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening. We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. For all of our detailed source material, please visit our website, thecrimebarpodcast.com. If you'd like to see content from today, you can find us on Instagram at crimebarpodcast. We really love doing this show. And if you'd like to help the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon, which we have linked on our website as well as our Instagram, patreon.com slash crimebarpodcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley-Johnson and Anna Katharina. We'll see you next week.